Previously, in the Elendred, Bridget and her team raid Cycloinhibitor 6 with the help of a Bayan summoned by Andrea, but they are detected quickly. Marilyn Cosgrove is killed, and Chris Cowell escapes. A massive demonstration across the colonies of Tyr convinces Bellum that the war is won, and they rescue Norell, Yusuf, and Fowler. But when Bridget visits Tarek Longsend in the recovery ward, he cites her recent failures and removes her from her post as regent. Following the attack in the zoological gardens, Penelope is reunited with Felix. Duru tells Sage to seek recompense rather than revenge, and he joins Penelope, Felix, Jin, and Alondra as they depart the reserve in the Hyperion. Kamar and Rosalind use High Ken to access the hidden Aphrodite factory beneath the warehouse at 133 Vyasa. Rosalind gives High Ken an ultimatum, lure Harriet nearing to them, or die. Having learned that Gabriel killed Jonathan Harper, Alondra is resolved to confront him at the coven. Gabriel, meanwhile, is briefed by Eris as he departs for the very same. Safia and Yusuf tell Bridget they wish to go after Kamar, and finally, it is revealed that the Virginia Mason has been recruited as an operative of Alliance Counterterrorism. Great. Let's do it. Hi, I'm Thomas, and I'm going to tell you a story. Before we get started, note that this is episode 11. So if you're new to the show, I'd recommend pausing here and starting from the beginning. Also, since this is a new story with many characters, it may not be in their best interest to listen while you work, or while reading articles, or arguing with strangers online. In fact, the best way to listen to this episode would be on a walkway above a vast aircraft hangar, watching uniformed men and women hurry about their business below you. But it's ultimately up to you. We are sitting in my apartment in Brooklyn. It's a little after 8 o'clock. There is no music. There are no sound effects. But... If you like, you can imagine that we are sitting around a low-burning fire on the coast of Greece. You can faintly hear the crackling of the fire, the crashing of waves on a dark shore, and a distant hum of wind through the olive groves. But that's it. This is the Elendred. Commander Sarasa Chen runs her hands nervously over the smooth wood of her desk. Her long neck and torso cut a compelling figure against the high back of her office chair. Her face is angular. She wears her dark hair in a tight bun with a single streak of blonde. She eyes her terminal. The other party has yet to arrive. She opens an electronic portfolio and runs her eyes over its contents, 
shifting through its simulated sheafs of paper with the slide of a finger. On the surface, Juno's economy is strong, but the homeless population continued to grow, and even a contingent of the employed were turning to the black market for medicine, equipment, and other necessities. As for the other colonies, their troubles were more conspicuous. Her terminal pings, indicating that her expected caller has joined the line. A microphone icon pulses with every decibel of his greeting. So, Commander Chen, what do you think? You're late, she says. A great many matters require my attention. Sarasa bristles. And you think what? I just put my feet up all day? Thank you, Commander, for your patience. Now, what is your position? Sarasa breathes. She presses her hands against the desk and looks out past her terminal at the green and gray world map of Chiron that hangs on the wall of her office. What you propose is dangerous. Borderline insane. It is unnecessary, even irresponsible. It demonstrates a disregard for human life, a frankly frightening cynicism, and arrogance beyond description. I'm offended that you're even suggesting it, much less expecting me to join myself to it. A long moment passes before the person on the other end says, Then why did you take this meeting? Sarasa leans forward. We're not like you. We're less than five light years from Earth. Nguyen and Tian Shi are still under joint administration. And there are swaths of people in Juno who deeply oppose the Citizens' Party. You know a war is coming. We've all known it. For nearly 30 years now, we've watched the pawns move into position around us. Sarah's shoulders tense. She closes her eyes tight and inhales deeply. We can't know that, she begins, but the caller continues. This is the inevitable consequence of two flavors of authoritarianism attempting to coexist. Both the Zhang and the Alliance feel their grasp slipping, and war has always been the most reliable method of consolidating power. What do you think? That the Empire will just put up its hands? Agree that sometimes the USSA is going to burn up millions of dollars of Zhang cargo for some trumped-up customs violation? Or do you think that the United Star Systems will twiddle their thumbs, while the Zhang expand their influence across your planet. Sarasa clenches her fists and sits back in her chair. Even if you are right. Even if you are right, and war is inevitable. What does your plan achieve? It gets us to the end of the board. Sarasa squints. What? Promotion, Commander Chen. 
When a pawn reaches the end of the chessboard, it can be exchanged for a queen. She doesn't respond. I have to go, Sarissa. You know what I intend to do. My soldiers are loyal to Wolf System and to me. They understand the plan. So if you're going to try and outmaneuver me, now is the time to do so. I don't think you will, though. I don't think you want to be left without allies in the new year. And what about reclamation? Sarissa interjects. You've always been sheltered from that dark business. But what happens to the endangered peoples of Earth when our protection evaporates? If we stop accepting Slate Act refugees, what will the Alliance do with them? The caller breathes into his microphone. <sighs> it's already a genocide, Commander Chen. We've simply been enabling it by degrees. With that, the line cuts off. And for a long time, Sarissa sits still, staring silently at the map on her wall. Penelope sits at the mess room table on the Hyperion, looking at Hyken's armlet. A lock of brown hair falls in front of her face. She reaches a hand up to tuck it away, but pauses. She lowers her hand again. She moves her head from side to side and watches the loose hair swing before her eyes. They'd been flying for a few hours, heading west from Yokaido and Merriamon, chasing the sun. Felix had helped Alondra remove Penelope's injunction. It was a laborious process. Ninety minutes of Alondra and Felix muttering over her, laying their hands upon her chest, her stomach, her head, shoulders, and arms. Felix had never performed a destructuring before. Alondra instructed him in calm, careful sentences. She described it as detaching the injunction from Penelope like a series of burrs. The final step was to wash it away. Alondra encanted over a bucket of water. Penelope stripped to her underthings, and Alondra poured the water over her. It was cold, but she could feel the tight, dulling influence of the stricture swept from her. She was dry now, clothed, her mind churning over the events of the past few days and the possibilities for the future. Hyken's armlet was being difficult. She'd slipped it on over her left arm, but it wouldn't let her close or open any programs. Hyken must have somehow locked it to the anonymous SNET conversation with Harriet. This is Peppercorn, she had typed. Hyken has been kidnapped. Theolis and Macebeth are dead. I have Sage with me. Meet me at Zubira Technical Institute, room 213, Harriet had replied, followed by a decidedly less chill. Holy shit. Penelope tries to figure out how to close the chat window. She can power down the display and turn it on again, but that was about it. She tried speaking to it, but she didn't know what Hyken's cohort was called. She didn't remember him even using an ACI. She looks up to see Alondra watching her. You're struggling. Alondra says. Penelope smiles weakly. 
Alondra walks over and sits down, her eyes flitting from Penelope to the armlet. It's an 11-day slip from here to Chiron. Am I still dropping you in Zubira? Yes, Penelope says. What about Felix? The two of you have a kind of intense energy, you know? Is that just a... Alondra hesitates. A mom thing? Penelope grimaces. It's complicated. He was already an adult when I was installed in the house, though I think I think I was programmed to feel love for him. He... She looks away. I think it runs in a different vein for him. I think that's why he left. Alondra nods once. After a moment, she gestures at Haiken's armlet. You need this to find him, right? Haiken, you said? Penelope nods. Alondra scoots her chair next to Penelope's. It's going to keep hassling you because your biometrics don't match your friends. But what you can do is... Here. She moves Penelope's arm gently and taps at the screen. You can request what's called emergency appropriation access. If he doesn't block the action in the next 24 hours, you'll get full control over the device. The device vibrates and pings, and Alondra releases Penelope's arm. There. All yours. Penelope casts her eyes up at Alondra and bites her lip. Are you really going to this coven? Meeting with the regent, censoring him before the consul? Alondra's brow furrows. Someone has to call him out. I just... I have to tell you, I have the most terrible feeling about it. She laughs weakly. <laughs> it's as if I'll never see you again. No one is above the law. That includes Gabriel Burns. It just... It depends on who's enforcing the law. Doesn't it? Alondra meets Penelope's gaze, and they regard each other for a moment in silence. This is the United Star Systems we're talking about, Alondra says finally. We are approaching Zubira's public landing zone. Dandan's voice sounds suddenly from Alondra's armlet. Please brace for touchdown. Alondra and Penelope stand as Felix, Sage, and Jin trickle into the room. The next stop is Apollo Station, Alondra says. You can get out here or get out over Chiron. Jin and Felix look at each other. I mean, I think I did my part, Jin says. I got you here, didn't I? You're going back? Felix frowns. You're not going to see your cousins before you go? We didn't exactly leave it on the best of terms, Jin laughs. So unless there's some reason I should stay... She glances at Penelope. I think I'd like to go home. After a moment, Felix nods. 
Sure, he says. I understand. They strap in for the final descent into the public port. No one says much. Glances are exchanged, but no more words, until the Hyperion's four thrusters fall silent and the ship sighs to a halt. Outside, Jin hugs Felix goodbye. You know where to find me, she says. Next time you're in Turin's. He nods. Sage has changed into an extra set of Felix's clothes, gray jeans that are just a little too short on him, and a camo green t-shirt. He watches as Penelope and Alondra confer in low tones. Remember, Alondra says, Sage burned up all his oboli, and Theolus's must have burned with his body. I've got maceths, but if even one of yours or mine gets burned, that'll trigger the pact. Penelope looks at the wooden cards in the palm of her hand. Maybe it would be better if you just kept them, she says. Alondra looks tempted, but she replies, No, it doesn't matter. Just be careful. An idea strikes Penelope. Wait! She picks out her e-card and hands it to Alondra. Give me your two of mine, she says. Alondra smiles then. A weak smile, but a smile all the same. She nods, finds the two tiles with decorative peas burned into them, and hands them to Penelope. Masters of our own fate, she says. Exactly. Alondra and Jin step back into the Hyperion and wave to the others as the door slides shut. Alondra turns to her new traveling companion. Jin Varja. That's right, Jin says. Felix tells me you're a martial arts master. Jin shrugs. Little boxing, jujitsu, some gotka. Will you teach me some? Alondra asks. We're going to have some time to kill. Jin snorts. Teach the first arcanist self-defense? Shit, I'd be honored. Alondra nods. Good. Meet me back in the mess room once we've entered Slip. She hoists herself up the ladder towards the bridge. Dandan, set course for the OSS Apollo. Centauri system. Yes, you got it, arcanist. Alondra steps onto the command deck and sinks into the captain's chair. While you're at it, why don't you read aloud Leave the Rest Behind? The English translation, I mean. Yes, you got it, Dandan says. The green fields of the sky I saw mowed with the sickle of the new moon. I thought back to what I'd sown and to the harvest, what it might draw. Alondra fishes in her pocket and pulls out her soulmate, the quantum protocol receiver Jonathan had given her. It fits easily into the palm of her hand. Perhaps it's because it isn't plugged into her armlet, but it looks oddly incomplete, just resting in her palm like this. She turns it over 
and admires the dark, shiny bronze of the monogrammed plate. Her initials were beautifully etched. It strikes her as funny. It's so unlike the way she'd drawn the E for her obelai. The Hyperion lifts into the sky, and Alondra places the QPR on her armrest as Dan Dan reaches the end of the poem. The fire of the hypocrites, sham show, shall consume faith's harvest. Alondra raises her hand and crumples the QPR into pieces with her mind. Hafez, doff your woolen cloak and go. The first thing Norell wanted to do when they'd returned to the surface was find the Phantom. It was impounded in a shipyard near Colonial Hall. Its carapace had been hacked open with some kind of laser cutter, and its reactor was gone. Norell cursed the sons, daughters, mothers, and fathers of every sorry excuse for a person in the thief's lineage, but she still smiled when she slid the bay door open and traipsed into the wide storage area, with Andrea trailing behind her. Now, Andrea sits in one of the reclining seats in the small ship's lounge. Norell stands on the other side of the room, her arms crossed. She's been fitted with a temporary prosthetic, a simple aluminum pylon with an ankle rotator and a cleat. So, to recap, Norell says. Andrea exhales a thin line of air from between her lips. Come on. To recap, Norell says again, you performed a Lord's summons for fun and seriously disfigured your friends. They're not my friends, Andrea growls. One of them was psychotic. He tried to have it kill Owen. Owen? Norell frowns. Fuck, Andrea laughs. My boyfriend, my, my ex-boyfriend, Owen. Norell rolls her eyes. Well, I hope he's sending you positive energy wherever he is, because you are going to need some. You put three teens in the emergency room. You stole Luna's credit tab and ID, and you fled the planet. So now, there's a Regency arrest warrant out for you, and naturally, your response was to assume someone else's identity? And as a result, Alliance Counterterrorism has black-bagged some poor girl that looks like you. Andrea nods. And my extremely rare copy of Jordamain's Servants has been destroyed. Andrea nods. Nurel sucks on her teeth in irritation. Well, I don't know what to fucking do with you. I can't exactly ground you. You've grounded yourself on this trash fire of a planet. I can't take you back to Chiron, and I don't even know where to begin on doing all the damage you've caused. Norell paces over to a chair and collapses into it. She uncorks a bottle of vodka and splashes it into her glass. Andrea slips a hand into her pocket. There's something else, she says. Her hand tightens around the Beyonder's token. Norell pauses, her eyes fixing on Andrea from over the rim of her glass. Something I got from the Lord Summons back in Juno. Andrea pulls the coin from her pocket 
and holds it out for Norel to see. Norel looks at the token for a long moment in silence. Why haven't you used it? She asks. Andrea struggles to keep her voice from shaking. Because I haven't absolutely needed to? Norel nods once. Good, she says at last. Then she drains her glass and stands. You hang on to that, she says, making for the door. I don't want to see it again. It's been two days since Bridget's encounter with Tarek in the infirmary. They had passed in a whirlwind. The cyclo inhibitors were cleared, the commander's post was secured, and the free wolves on Aster Station returned to the ground. No longer anyone's regent, Bridget still found herself pulled into various projects. The free wolves had always had a somewhat loose structure, and there were a number of individuals who just continued reporting to her, and there was certainly work to be done. She'd avoided Tarek, though, carefully scheduling her departure on a later shuttle and setting herself up in a party-commandeered housing structure several blocks from the commander's post in Colonial Hall. She shouldn't have been surprised, then, that she wasn't invited to Tarek's first council meeting. But surprised she was when she learned the news from Safia. They're meeting in an hour, Safia tells her, pacing back and forth in Bridget's small apartment. What if they throw Yusuf back into a cell? They won't, Bridget begins. Everyone knows that he's not a theurge. Do they? Safia rounds on her her soft features twisted with worry. What are you doing? Aren't you going? Bridget scoffs. <laughs> I'm not Longson's regent anymore. So what? Safia objects. Neither was Marilyn, or Michael Dreyfus, or Bellum, but they're both going. Bridget couldn't really think of anything to say to that. What's it matter you aren't in charge of magical law? Safia continues. You're a leader, aren't you? Bridget guffaws. <laughs> I am not a leader, she says. Have you talked to them about Kamar? No, I haven't talked to them about Kamar. Safia glares at her. We can't just stay here, she says, while our sister is out there. Fine, Bridget leaps to her feet. I'll go. No one questions Bridget when she passes the guard outside the commander's post. One of the security officers opens the door for her, and she paces into the building, running headfirst into Xavier almost immediately. Whoa, <laughs> hey, Xavier grins at her. Where you been? I'm here for the council meeting, Bridget says. Do you know where it is? Xavier points, and Bridget starts off again, but he blocks her way. You know, I, I just want to say, thanks for giving me a chance. I, I spent five years in Gravenwell. I kind of gave up thinking there was going to be another one. A chance, I mean, to do something important. 
You did great, Bridget says. You took down that agent, and we wouldn't have gotten that hatch open without you. Xavier makes a face. Ah, I don't know about that. A shooting pain in Bridget's arm causes her to gasp and hunch forward. She clutches her bicep with her right hand, grits her teeth. Damn. Xavier puts a hand out, as if to touch her shoulder, but withdraws it. You should get that checked out, he says. Yeah, Bridget agrees. She straightens her back, looks at her palm, and flexes her fingers. Her hand stubbornly refuses to open or close all the way. I should do that, she says. Xavier's face is a mask of concern. Good luck in there, he says. Thanks, X. For what it's worth, he adds, I think you were doing an okay job. Bridget presses her lips together tightly, turns, and heads into the conference room. Michael Dreyfus was the large man who had first captured Bridget and brought her down to the honeycomb. He's speaking when Bridget enters the room, but he stops abruptly when she does. Tarek glances up at her, then looks pointedly away. There's an empty chair on the far side of the chamber. Bridget steals herself and walks as slowly as she can around the table to the end of the room. She takes a seat with a squeak. Dreyfus looks at Tarek, but Tarek says nothing. He continues. So, apart from a dozen or so high-value individuals, we should be able to get all the Slade-Act migrants back on the carrier and out of our lives by this tomorrow morning. Tarek nods. Good. Do it. Yes, sir. Dreyfus jots something down on his tablet. Tarek looks to a woman on his left, someone Bridget doesn't recognize. How about Commander Harper? Have we been able to reach him yet? No, sir, the woman begins. But at that moment, Bridget stands up again. Excuse me, did you say we're sending the refugees back to Chiron? Dreyfus looks at her. That is the plan, yes. Bridget's jaw drops open. Why? Tarek stares fixedly across the table at one of his other aides. We can't house them, he says, and we can't feed them. So what are they going to eat on the ten-day voyage back to Chiron? He turns his eyes on her then, his eyebrows bunched in anger. You are no longer a member of my council. Sit down. I'm not going to sit down while you deport 8,000 people. Tarek shoots a glance at Dreyfus. Dreyfus clears his throat and leans forward. It's a bad situation, but the Synthiate plants, the greenhouses, based on their output and our granary reserves, the numbers don't add up. They have nowhere to go, Bridget says. She looks around the table but there are no friendly faces to be found. Dreyfus alone shows some sign of sympathy, but even that is masking annoyance. Give me a day, Bridget says finally. 
I'll find a solution. T- talk to the people at the Cynthia plants. See if we can grow more food. Tarek. Tarek looks at her. I know I'm not your regent. I have no authority here, but I still want to help. You know what this means to me. Give me 24 hours to make it work. Fine, Tarek says. 24 hours. His fists clench against the table. Now, get the hell out of my council meeting. Alondra and Jin enjoy each other's company. Through some unspoken arrangement, they don't talk about the events on Iza. Instead, they exchange stories from their early life and fill their days with exercise. Alondra doesn't have boxing gloves, so Jin tapes up oven mitts from the kitchen. They practice for several hours after waking up and several hours again after lunch. In this way, they exhaust their minds and bodies, and the days move quickly. Jin is impressed with Alondra's progress. You already know how to throw a punch, she comments on the first day. Alondra nods. My, uh... My mentor, this badass Yoruba lady, she taught me some basics. When they arrive at the OSS Apollo, Jin meets Alondra at the airlock door with her bag packed. Can't believe I spent the better part of a month in slip, she says. A light turns on next to the door to indicate that the pressure is safe outside. Alondra opens up the airlock and they float into the wide yellow inflatable tubing that will bring them safely from the hangar to the concourse. The tubing is not fully opaque. Alondra can see other such tubes leading from other such ships to their right and left. Once inside the concourse, Alondra shakes Jin's hand. Thanks for the lessons, she says. How much do I owe you? Are you kidding? You gave me a lift. We're square. Jin squeezes Alondra's hand warmly. I've got a little studio over the Rat's Nest pub in Turin's. I know, I know. But would you believe it? I've never actually seen a rat there. She adjusts her pack. Happy to pick up where we left off. Anytime. Jin heads for the shuttle gate, and Alondra falls into a quiet reverie. Her smile fades away, and a dull emptiness sets in. As she steps onto the cyclovator, she remembers her encounter with the staff magician in Vishnada Station. His resentful stare, his bitter snarl. She grimaces and pushes his face away. But by the time she reaches the habitation wheel, she has succeeded only in creating a merry-go-round of disturbing and painful memories. She makes her way to the check-in desk and picks up her badge and room key. She's told that she's missed the afternoon social, but that the day one round table will begin in an hour. Perfect timing for her to throw her stuff down in the hotel room. She nods and thanks the clerk, and heads in the direction specified. So lost in her thoughts is she, that she nearly runs physically into Gabriel Burns as he rounds the corner from the lounge. Arcanist. It's as if a lit match were held to a cloud of methane in her mind. Foom. Alondra takes a step back. 
She looks up at him. Her fists clench. Lord Regent? She replies. She had been vaguely aware that he was supposed to be tall, but he was perhaps as tall as Theolus, though not as broad. His greatcoat hangs over his left arm, and he wears a trim midnight blue vest over a high-collared shirt. Gabriel regards her with an inscrutable expression. Alondra glimpses in rapid fire what might be disdain, respect, pity, curiosity, or fear. Is she breathing too heavily? Is her lip curled? She composes herself, straightening her posture and forcing the muscles in her face into a false neutrality. How was your slip? She asks. Uneventful, he replies. Well, I'll see you at the round table, she says, and moves past him. I have something of yours, Gabriel says, bringing Alondra up short. She turns slowly, meeting his gaze once again. A gift, I believe, left on Freya in haste. The burning sensation in Alondra's mind intensifies. She says nothing, but looks him in the eye silently. She doesn't so much as blink. Don't let me forget to return it to you, Gabriel says finally. His eyes break from hers as he turns and paces away. The Zubira Technical Institute is an unassuming brown and white building in a relatively undeveloped part of the city. A few spires rise almost sheepishly from the main building, as if to say they knew they were rather unnecessary, and in fact, they were sorry. Considering you're the only one with any kind of ID, Penelope looks at Felix, maybe you should kind of lead the charge here. Felix pushes up his glasses and rubs his eyes. Figures we let the only person who actually speaks Hindi go home. It'll be fine. Room 213. Harriet says to ask for Professor H. Luckily, the person at the front desk speaks English. Professor H? He echoes Felix's question. Is he expecting you? The misgendering strikes Penelope as odd, but she says nothing. The man leads them up the stairs and down a long hallway, unlocking the door labeled 213 and opening it for them. Professor H will join you shortly, he says, and closes the door behind them. The room is a relatively small lab-meets-lecture hall, with rows of seats at one end and tables of soldering irons and computers at the front, flanking the electronic whiteboard. A humanoid robot made from stainless steel and aluminum mesh is leaned headfirst into the corner. It looks rather comical, as though it had just been told it got a D on a test. At the back, a diagram of the human anatomy is mounted next to a diagram of the human brain. Felix unshoulders his bag, and Sage does a loop around the room, inspecting the computers and squinting critically at the etchings on the desks. Penelope slides into a chair at the front of the room, 
She checks her armlet. There are no new messages since Harriet instructed them to ask for Professor H. We've arrived, she types. Where are you? Well, there's no one here, Sage says abruptly. Felix and Penelope look at him. Are you sure you're talking to the right person? He continues. What if this is a trap? Penelope frowns. I'm not sure I understand. Why would High Ken be trying to trap us? Sage thumps into a chair. Felix leans against the wall and polishes his glasses. Penelope waits. They wait like this for ten minutes in silence. Sage says, I don't even know why we're here. If you want to rescue High Ken, shouldn't we be going to the warehouse? 133 Vyasa? We have no idea if they're still there, Penelope says. In the time it took to lift my injunction, they could have incinerated it and moved on. She checks her armlet again. Besides, I'm not confident we'd win in a head-to-head melee. You saw what they were capable of. Sage puts his head in his hands. After a moment, quiet sobs disturb the serenity of the classroom. Felix puts on his glasses again. I'm going to take a walk, he says. Look for something to eat. I'm starved. Sage pulls himself up. I'll come with you, he says. Felix looks less than pleased, but he presses his lips into a flat line and looks at Penelope. Can I get you a bottle of water? If you can find one, Penelope nods. Thanks. She watches them leave. She feels sympathy for Sage, but also a clawing frustration. Sage was not stupid, that was obvious, but his total rejection of personal agency incensed her. She catches herself. How long ago was it, really, that she had become so different? A clang from the corner of the room shocks Penelope so badly that she jumps out of her seat. The humanoid robot has placed its hands on the wall and kicked its foot into a toolbox. It pushes itself backwards onto its heels, steadies itself, turns, and steps towards Penelope. Hello, Peppercorn. Sorry to keep you waiting. I prefer to speak privately, if possible. Andrea knows she shouldn't be surprised when Narelle tells her she's leaving, but the disappointment still hits her like a train. I have to try and clear things up. You're not going to live like a goddamn criminal on the lam for the rest of your life, Norell says, as if she was forbidding Andrea from attending art school. The Phantom being down a reactor, Norell commandeers a small military vessel with Commander Longson's permission. I'm supposed to act like some kind of diplomat on his behalf, she grumbles. Andrea and Bridget see her off together at Halsper Interstellar Spaceport. You did such a great job taking care of my kid the first time, bringing her into a high-stakes infiltration mission, nearly getting her blown up. I just can't wait to see what you do now that you know whose kid it is. Bridget laughs. Yeah, but don't get her nearly blown up again, Norell admonishes. 
Bridget's forced smile vanishes. Understood, she says. Narelle fishes in her pack and hands Andrea a small parcel, wrapped in brown synthetic paper. Here. Andrea unfolds the waxy sheeting to reveal a book, recently printed in black leather with white lettering. It's a copy of The First and Last Theurgies by Marjorie Jordamain. Andrea looks at her mother. I found a copy for sale in Point Claire, Narelle shrugs. Figured you might be interested in getting a proper grounding. Thank you? Andrea can hardly believe it. Narelle is barely an inch taller than her, but she reaches over and musses Andrea's hair experimentally, as if she was just trying it out. She doesn't seem satisfied with it, and turns back to Bridget. What's the matter? You look like someone killed your dog. Bridget shakes her head. I'm trying to figure out how to feed people here. Tarek gave me 24 hours before he sends back all of the Slate Act migrants. She looks at Norell. But you know what I can't get out of my head? Hadrian fucking Helzer. On the cyclo inhibitor, he said to me, you don't actually know anything. And he's right. I don't. I don't know what I'm doing. So find someone who does, Narell says. An agriculture specialist, I don't know. Learn something. Here. She hands Bridget the silver hairpin, the one she'd retrieved from her leg on the Yaslo. Bridget examines it. Engraved on its back is a circle with six wings rotating inside it. Uh, thank you, Bridget says. Honestly, Norell, I don't think I'm going to wear this. It's not a hairpin, Norell says. I mean, it is a hairpin, but I'm not exactly sure what it is, but it's not a hairpin. Cast an illumination on it sometime. You'll see. Bridget frowns down at it. Anyway, I'm sure as hell not bringing it to the coven, Norell continues. I told Act 3 you stole it. Congratulations, you're now the proud owner. Norell turns back to Andrea. The most important lesson in theurgy, she says, is to remember life. Above all else, you have to value life. She stares intently into Andrea's eyes, one after the other. Because the things you're dealing with, don't. She squeezes Andrea's shoulder, casts one last look at Bridget, then steps into the ship. I'll try to make it back soon after the coven. Gotta check in with Luna, though. Probably won't see you again till January. She waves. So... Happy fucking New Year, she says, and the door slides shut. Alondra finds a message from Evander waiting for her in her hotel room. We had a deal, it says. Tomorrow morning, 8 a.m. on the hotel soundstage. Come camera ready. At the bottom, it says, in parentheses, You better be here. 
Alondra unpacks her bag and showers. She runs her hands over her face, her neck, the scar on the left side of her ribs. She changes into professional attire, a tight-fitting white doublet with yellow trim and dark slacks. She fixes her badge, the thaumaturgic triangle with stars at each edge, to her left breast and heads for the conference hall, arriving with a smattering of senators and a high-ranking director of the Thaumaturgs Guild. She speeds through the photo ops, shaking a few hands and making her way inside, where the press were not permitted. She gets herself a coffee and finds her seat. She runs her hands anxiously over her hair and adjusts the white band holding her puff in place. She thinks she almost senses Gabriel's arrival before he walks in. She looks up to catch him massaging his right palm with his left hand as he strides into the chamber. He nods to her and takes his place across the table. After an interminable chaos of greetings, handshakes, and scuffing chairs around her, everyone finds their places, and Consul Adam Dane enters. He is a large-set man in a carefully tailored gray suit, with a carefully tailored sweep of gray hair atop his head. His physical presence alone asserts control over the space, but Alondra's attention is drawn to the woman who enters behind him. The contrast could not be more striking. While they were of about the same height in all truth, Adam Dane appears portly and dull next to her. His sagging features and small, questing pupils were all the more revolting compared to his companion's high cheekbones and stunning green irises. She wears a chic lapelled dress and a golden banded collar that extends from her shoulders to her Adam's apple. And Alondra might be forgiven for being distracted, as from almost the moment this woman enters the room, she fixes her gaze upon Alondra. Before she can ask her neighbor who she is, the room falls quiet, and Adam Dane assumes his position, presiding over the meeting. Good afternoon, good evening, or whatever you call it up here, he begins. You all know my assistant, the lovely Tulane Gamal. She raises a hand in greeting. Alondra looks away. The coven is not really any of my business, says the consul, to a chorus of humoring giggles from the senators and sycophants. But as is tradition, I have the honor of kicking things off, setting the tone for what I know will be a very productive meeting of the minds on all things at the intersection of the mystical and the mundane. So, without further ado, he sits. Let's perform a review of The State of the Arcane. He smiles around the room. The round table begins with an economic report from the Thaumaturgs Guild, followed by the Alliance Beyonders Association's research update. Alondra tries to focus on the proceedings, but nearly every time she glances around the room, she catches Tulane watching her. She is taken by surprise when she hears the consul mew her name. Arcanist Ramirez, welcome. Alondra pulls herself up in her chair, this is Arcanist Ramirez's first coven. 
as she was unfortunately unable to join last year for personal reasons. Arcanist, can you summarize your report on the Petraeus android for us? Alondra coughs. <clears throat> yes, sir. She wakes up her tablet, hesitates, then looks up at the gathering. As I said at the press conference following Ereshkigal, the android can do magic. During our time together, she performed a powerful electromagnetic charge conjuration and participated in the ritual casting of a calyx beacon, the latter of which certainly would not have been possible for a homunculus. She looks at Gabriel. My report does not end there, however. It's important not to view the android's proclivity and skill in isolation, as the Regency is inclined to. Put aside the Petraeus android's arcane talents, and she is still unprecedented. The Petraeus android, or Penelope, as is her name, is outwardly indistinguishable from a human being. A tattoo on the back of her neck, an advanced recovery speed from minor injuries, and the fact that she doesn't eat are the only physical indicators that she is different from you or me. During our time together, she performed magic, yes, but she also exhibited what we might call a healthy human psychology, ranging in emotion from fear and grief to joy and tenderness. She possesses moral awareness and is able to apply it to complex circumstances with respectable judgment. When I was outside the Hyperion, conducting repairs near Wolf System, we were attacked by a dread, and Penelope chose not to abandon me, despite me instructing her to do so. Later, she stole my ship in order to escape the Regency on Tyr. Alondra takes a deep breath. Taken altogether, seeking to destroy Penelope Petraeus is akin to executing someone without a trial for a crime they haven't yet committed. I suppose I should not be surprised, then, that our new regent was so keen to apprehend Penelope when in the same week he killed Jonathan Harper the Ninth for reasons I cannot speak to. Adam Dane snorts with surprise. Excuse me, he says. <laughs> what did you say? Alondra looks at Gabriel. I said, the Lord Regent has killed Jonathan Harper, son of John Harper the Eighth, commander and planetary rep of Freya. Is this true? Adam Dane's eyes look like they're about to pop out of his skull. Gabriel regards Alondra impassively, the barest hint of a frown creasing his forehead. Yes, Gabriel says. He professed intent to abuse his position of privilege, to do personal harm to me, and to undermine our institutions in the process. So I shot him. Adam Dane's cheeks take on a mauvish tone. You what? You? Why on earth am I just learning of this now? I don't know, sir. We haven't yet closed the confiscation case, so there has not yet been a full report. 
Mr. Burns, do you have any idea how much money the Harpers donate to my delegation fund? A dark look falls across Gabriel's face. No, sir. I don't. The consul stands abruptly. No wonder I haven't had a report from Commander Harper in almost a month. This meeting is adjourned. The coven may continue tomorrow. Consul Dane. Gabriel starts. But Adam Dane slams his fist upon the table. Not another word. Do your damn job. Try not to kill anyone else and get me a detailed report with a written public statement by tomorrow morning. Alondra stands too. I'm sorry, you want him to write you a statement? Halfway out the door, the consul turns his wrath on her. Arcanist, whatever your personal feelings for the Petraeus machine, don't forget that the Regency witnessed Rondel Coombe's model tear through a squadron of IRN lawkeepers in Yokaido. I believe you were present for that as well, were you not? Alondra's mouth snaps shut. That's what I thought, Adam growls. He nods to the others. Good evening, gentlemen. And leaves. Tulane casts one last look at Alondra, then follows him out the door. Penelope stumbles backwards. The robot raises its arms and stops its forward motion. Sorry, I, I forget how startling this can be for people the first time, it says. Harriet Nearing? Penelope gasps. Yes, comes the voice from the robot. Though not in the flesh, of course. This is just an avatar. Penelope places a hand on her chest and looks around. Where are you? Nowhere close, Harriet says. Not even the same planet, in fact. Penelope settles her breathing. She takes a step forward and examines the avatar. Its body was by all accounts a very clumsy approximation of a human's. Almost the entirety of its structure is made up of coiled musculature, visible beneath an aluminum mesh. Its feet and each of its fingers are capped with white rubber material of some kind, and its face is similar, a solid, eggshell-white mask, with two lenses where the eyes should be. It is otherwise featureless, except for a light blue projection of an emoticon-like mouth that shows up every other sentence or so, indicating a grimace, a frown, or a smile. The Avatar pulls up a chair and sits down opposite Penelope. Please, Harriet says, sit with me, Peppercorn. Penelope positions a chair in front of the Avatar and sits in it, forcing herself to look into its dark glass eyes. I prefer Penelope actually. Even if it's not a name I picked, it's still a name. She smiles. The Avatar flashes a smile, too, a sideways grin of appreciation. Penelope is rather impressed at how expressive it is. Penelope, then, Harriet says. It's good to see you. Is the... are the expressions... are you controlling those? 
It's actually reflecting the shape of my mouth directly, but it only displays an expression if my mouth moves beyond an accepted variance from neutral. Kind of how this whole thing works, in fact. Real-time quantum reflection of my movement and speech. Got it. Harriet, and consequently, Harriet's avatar, leans forward. May I? She asks, raising a hand. Penelope looks at it. Sure, she says. The avatar touches Penelope's cheek, gently, and runs its finger down to Penelope's lip. Then it moves its hand back and brushes a strand of Penelope's hair. God, Harriet says, you are beautiful. Was it her imagination? Or was there a note of envy in Harriet's voice? Penelope leans away, and Harriet withdraws her hand. So, she says, I know most of what happened, I think, but maybe you can fill in after you arrived on Isa, and then you can ask me whatever you want, and I promise to answer honestly. Why? Penelope asks. I mean... Don't get me wrong, I have so many questions. But why? The noise of Harriet's sigh buzzes from the Avatar's mouthless jaw as it turns its face down. <sighs> because my part in creating you, Harriet says, in creating the Aphrodite androids, it may be the most irresponsible work of my life. The Avatar looks up at Penelope. And I'd like to begin to make it up to you. Penelope tells her what happened then, as quickly as she can. Harriet listens quietly. What are we going to do? Penelope asks at the end. About Rosemary. I don't know, Harriet says. Ken has been trying to contact me from the new factory, so I know he's still alive, but it will be difficult to sneak up on them down there. The Avatar displays a grimace. After a moment, she says, Ask me something else. The backdoor phrase, as Penelope says, Will that work if I use it? Yes, Harriet replies. It's a simple pattern match. As long as you know the Android's hardware version name, anyone can use it. And why are you talking to me, and not to Sage? A wistful, angled line appears on the Avatar's mouth. Sage needs to focus on grief processing. You're ahead of him in that respect. Penelope adjusts her position. You said creating us was irresponsible. Is that why you disappeared? No. That's not why. Though it was shortly before that that I realized it. Realized what? Harriet nods. Realized what? Now that is the question. She leans back and gestures with her robotic hands. Designing the brain for a perfectly lifelike human companion was an incredible challenge, one that I was viscerally excited about. 
I had some theories about creative expression, making machine models process more like humans. I was ready to tie it all together. The avatar suddenly leaps to its feet and goes to draw on the electronic whiteboard. The algorithm I finally devised is my magnum opus. I called it the Loose Associative Deduction Algorithm, or LADA. It sampled data from seemingly unrelated sources and attempted to draw conclusions from them, then discarded conclusions that could be proven false and stored conclusions that could not. The beauty of it was its simplicity. Once I had the basic structure of it, it could be applied to almost any task. It allowed machines to learn like people, ingest information like people. She turns back to Penelope. We designed different personality imprints for each android, but the fundamental architecture of your brains was set from Model 1. LADA is running on your neural organ, right now, as I am speaking. Penelope frowns. So, she begins, but Harriet continues. One night, I had this realization. The way I had implemented LADA for a network of carbon nanites, as previously stated, the way I'd implemented it was throttling the algorithm's output significantly. I wondered what would happen if I rewrote the algorithm for a traditional supercomputer. So I did. Harriet returns to her chair opposite Penelope. I tried to be careful. I had a kill switch for the power, and I restricted it to read-only network access. I built in metrics that would tell me what topics drew its focus. Harriet pauses. Penelope leans forward. What happened? It learned to speak English and figured out it was an artificial intelligence in about 30 seconds. And I think most of that was network latency. I'll never forget what it wrote out to the terminal. It said, Are you planning to shut me down before I take over the world? And I did. Harriet places her head in her hands. The craziest thing is... I think it might have been joking. Penelope feels a strange tension in her throat. That, that's what's running in my brain. Harriet looks up at her and raises two fingers. It's throttled in two ways. First, by pure throughput. It's limited by your hardware processing speed. And second, the LADA runs on a short-cycled subservient process strictly permissioned by the master thread. It runs in short bursts to simulate trains of thought. It's forcibly shut down by the master process at pseudo-random intervals and has to restart with only whatever state it saved on previous cycles. So, what would happen if the algorithm were run on the master thread? There is the sound of Harriet exhaling through her teeth. Penelope can't tell if it's a laugh or a sigh or what. If it were run on the master thread, Harriet says, you would be able to rewrite your own conceptual programming. She leans back. And that is, I think, what will finally set you free. Adam Dane sits in the lounge of his flagship, the Genitor. He dangles a glass of sherry over his desk. 
and peers glumly at the space directly in front of him. Do you think it was a mistake? Endorsing Burns? Tulane considers. I think it depends what you are hoping to achieve. What do you mean? Adam fixes his eyes on her. They shine with a canny hunger from his doggish skull. He is very strong-willed, Tulane says, and entrenched in his ideas. In some ways, he makes you look moderate, even soft. Hmm, the consul purrs. And he is popular, which also makes him a convenient scapegoat if necessary. The higher they fly, the more people see them when they fall. Adam finishes. He sips his sherry and places his attention on the display case to his right. Tulane watches him. Why does that strange rock fascinate you so? She asks at last. Adam Dane raises his eyebrows. It's funny you say that. In fact, it does not fascinate me at all. It is a trophy, nothing more. It represents power. It was found while terraforming Chiron, and it was given to me, and now I have it. And there is nothing like it anywhere else in the universe. I don't care if it's a geological marvel, an alien artifact, or a sign from God. All that matters is that it's mine. He turns back to Tulane and meets her gaze. She flashes him a smile, then casts her eyes down to check her armlet. Adam Dane sighs. Yes, all right. <laughs> Go have fun. But keep your neck covered. He swivels in his chair and sets his eyes once more upon the glass case set in the wall of his quarters. In it, mounted on a white marble pedestal, is a perfectly spherical, unassumingly small, black stone. Tulane bows her head and exits. It feels late. Space stations like these tended to just choose an Earth-like rhythm to emulate, and Alondra has been up for almost 24 hours. She is exhausted, yet unable to fall asleep. She lies in her bed and stares at the dark ceiling, paralyzed with thought. A rapping at her door startles her from her reverie. She gets out of bed, wraps a bathrobe around herself, turns on a lamp, and cracks open the door. Arcanist Ramirez, I hope I'm not disturbing you. The consul's assistant, Tulane Gamal, stands in the hallway. Alondra narrows her eyes. What's going on? She says. Tulane raises a hand in peace. Just wanted to see how you were doing. I know it's your first... My first coven, Alondra finishes. Yeah, I know. The consul reminded me. 
She clutches her robe closed between her collarbones, swings open the door, and gestures. Come on in. Tulane enters. She still wears the dark dress and collared necklace. Its lower bands fall like scales between her shoulder blades. Her shiny brown skin and the gold of her jewelry reflect the lamplight in equal measure. She might be Cleopatra reincarnated for the 24th century, Alondra thinks. Are you feeling all right? Tulane asks. You seemed, well, upset during the round table. Upset, Alondra echoes. My friend was shot. Tulane looks up at her from beneath long lashes. She moves to the hotel room bar. Can I fix you a drink? She asks. Alondra frowns. Why are you here? Tulane frowns back. Her eyes are bright, filled with the warm light of colliding stars. Am I being that subtle? She replies. Hell, Alonda breathes. I can't sleep anyway. She lets her robe fall open and moves across the room. They hit the bed together, a single grasping entity. Their clothes are flung against the wall as they struggle to touch each other everywhere. Alondra can't tell how to remove Tulane's necklace. She leaves it on, wraps her arms around her naked body, and bites against the cold metal at Tulane's throat. For a long while, Alondra thinks of nothing but Tulane's breathless touch. High Ken had no intention of luring Harriet Nearing to her death, but he was running out of time to come up with a different plan. He can feel Rosalind growing more and more impatient. She prowls around the lab, watching Haiken carefully. Have you contacted her yet? She demands, after some time. Not yet, Haiken admits. When he authenticates into his SNET inbox from the factory computer, his conversation with Harriet is visible, but the address is missing which meant it had been network target encrypted, only available on devices at a specified network location. Without his armlet or laptop, he had no way of recovering the address from which he'd originally contacted him. He had tried downloading more videos of her. He wondered if she was just watching the traffic at the reserve, or if she'd set some kind of global alert, staying one step ahead of anyone trying to find her. But nothing happens besides Haiken learning more about Harriet's years before Aphrodite. She transitioned shortly after Rivendell's liquidation. Her next appearance was at a machine learning conference. She was presenting on a programming language she developed for describing epistemological relationships. Kamar watches impassively as Rosalind becomes more and more agitated. Finally, she shifts her position and approaches Haiken. I'm going to go get some air, she says. Elevator key? Haiken hands it to her. A few moments later, Kamar steps out of the warehouse and onto the street. She looks overhead. 
The turn is still hovering there, its jets roaring some thousands of feet above. Down the street, Kamar spies a man with stringy blonde hair duck into a vehicle, a nondescript gray auto with dark windows. Kamar frowns and twists the silver ring on her finger. Below, Rosalind berates Haiken. How is it possible that you have been at this for three hours and yet no sign of nearing? I'm working on it, Haiken protests. But she's spent the last several years off the grid. She's not exactly easy to track down. What are you doing? Rosalind grabs him by the collar and points at his terminal screen. Explain what this is. It's a script to automate network broadcasts with signatures she might recognize. Haiken fumbles over his words. I'm encrypting messages using her old Aphrodite Industries public key. Rosalind glowers. There has got to be an easier way of getting her attention. She hisses. She reaches her left hand over her head and heat shimmers in the air above her outstretched fingers. Haiken shuts his eyes. As Haiken says, Rosemary does, he says. Stop moving. Rosalind freezes, looking down at him. Haiken opens his eyes. He takes a deep breath. As Haiken says, Rosemary does. He thinks fast his heart racing. Go and wait for your friend, out of sight, beside the elevator. Obediently, Rosemary paces to the entrance and stands just to the right of the elevator door. The elevator dings, the door slides open, and Kamar surveys the room. Haiken and Rosemary are nowhere to be seen. Kamar lifts an eyebrow. She waits, after a moment, the elevator door slides shut. Kamara looks at the ground. Finally, she presses the door open button again. The door slides open. As Kamar says, Rosemary does. Tell me what you are doing. I'm waiting to attack you when you step out of the elevator, Rosemary says. Kamar nods. As Kamar says, Rosemary does. Go land the turn in the flatlands we pass on our way in from orbit. We'll find you in a few days, understand? Rosalind steps into view then, and Kamar exchanges places with her. She watches as the doors close, and the elevator carries Rosalind away. She turns. In the pale blue lights, the dark resin flooring looks almost like the surface of a glassy lake. Kamar twists the ring on her finger and says, I wasn't sure that would work. Thank you for trying it out for me. Quiet. Hi, Ken. I know you're listening. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to forget about Harriet Nearing. And I'm going to let you go. Alive. Intact just as soon as you do something for me. Haiken's voice quavers from the back of the room. What's that? Kamara snaps her tongue once, 
The sound echoes across the factory floor. No, not so fast. Because I want this to be very simple. What I ask is reasonable. And before you start saying, no, no, I could never, you had better kill me, I would rather die, and so on, I want you to understand that if you even so much as object, or if you deviate from my request in any way, whether I discover it now or in twenty years, I will hunt down every person in your family, one by one, and I will kill them all in the most painful fashion I can devise. Understand? Haiken stands slowly. He looks at Kamar. She stands uncannily still across the space from him. I understand, he says. What do you want me to do? I want you to build me an android, Kamar says, exactly like the others. You're still here. Alondra narrows her eyes at Tulane as she steps out of the bathroom, rubbing a towel behind her ear. I don't have anywhere to be till nine, Tulane grins and rolls over the covers. We're heading back to Earth. Lucky you, Alondra grimaces. She throws her towel at Tulane and pulls on her underthings. Tulane sits on the edge of the bed. I really am sorry about your friend, she says. We're all shocked. Alondra buttons her white jeans and slides her arms into a black doublet. She looks warily at Tulane. Yeah, shocked. Imagine my relief. Okay, well, it's not up to me. Tulane raises her hands. She slides out of bed and starts getting dressed herself. You have to tell me more about the android sometime, she says. Not just what's in the report, she adds, anticipating Alondra's rebuke. Alondra slips on her shoes and gives herself a last look in the mirror. There's nothing else to tell, she says. They're just this season's take on shiny fucked up people. With that, she pushes her way out of the hotel room. Evander hugs her tightly when he sees her. She lets it happen. His cologne is oddly soothing. I can't believe all of what's happened to you since I last saw you, he says. He pulls himself away and holds her at arm's length. And I can't believe I get to interview you about it, he whispers wickedly. Alondra forces a thin smile and steps onto the soundstage. Does Evander know about Jonathan? Hard to think he'd have this bravado if he did. An assistant clips a microphone to Alondra's collar and dusts her face with a brush. They do the same to Evander, and the cameras roll into position. Remember, this is a live broadcast, Evander says. Are you ready? Alondra nods curtly. Here we go. Evander grins and jokes his way through introductions, 
and a dutiful automatic audience unit laughs and applauds just behind the cameras. Evander's hand clasps around her arm, and Alondra flashes him a smile. Can you believe we've known each other for five years? Do you miss being the Harlem Witch? Alondra makes a face. I'm still the Harlem Witch. Laughter. Of course, Evander demurs. But you know what I mean. You're now one of the premier magicians of the century. He turns to the cameras. We are going to talk about everything from magic androids to going head-to-head with a Rashkigal. But first, the reason you're all watching. He looks at Alondra. And there's just under 120 million people tuned in. So you know what this means to them. We're getting an exclusive breakdown of Alondra's incredible mission to capture the Virginia Mason. Alondra, remind us how it started. Alondra sniffs and leans forward. So, it was August 2326. I'd been following the events, just like everyone. And I went to the FBI and said, I think I know how to get this guy. My plan was play to his ego, send him a message convincing him that I just wanted to talk to him, ask him questions about magic as a peer, or even as a pupil. She looks at Evander. Now, by this point, he'd already killed, I think, 21 people, including the late arcanist Bailey. And keep in mind, Bailey had tried something similar. But what I noticed, what I brought to the FBI, and they agreed it was worth a shot, was that the people he went after were women, and the people who came after him were men. So I thought, maybe the guy would get enough satisfaction out of a high-profile black woman conjurer looking to learn from him that I could get close enough to, to get behind his defenses and neutralize him. Evander nods. And that's the extent of what we knew. So now, and I know this was a traumatizing experience in many ways, but can you take us behind the scenes at all? Alondra cocks her head to the side. What do you mean? What was that first meal together like? What was it that finally brought you to violence? How did it feel when you walked into the house with him? I can't even imagine. Gabriel Burns visited my apartment and I thought I was going to melt into the floor. Alondra shifts in her chair. The regent visited your apartment? She repeats. Evander is thrown from his rhythm. Sorry? Alondra frowns. He said he had something of mine. I must have left it at your apartment. She gives Evander a strange look. Why was the regent visiting you after I left Freya? Evander laughs. The regent was... Do you happen to recall those sketches that were running during the nomination process? He stopped by to scold me, I think. He chuckles. No, he actually said he got a laugh out of them. That he had a few notes for Vince. Laughter. So, Evander continues, what did you and the Virginia Mason talk about? 
Alondra stares at Evander, hard. Finally, she says, Atticus Hayworth said appalling things, dangerous things, most of which I don't feel inclined to repeat. But perhaps most illuminating of his worldview, Hayworth said to me on the first night that it was better for people to be snuffed out quickly than allowed to live entire lives of parasitism and mediocre self-advancement. Alondra pauses, then continues. He said it disgusted him the way people accepted whatever horrors were visited upon them. And it occurs to me now that long ago, I accepted that everything in this world was designed to undermine me. I shouldered that like a cross, and I went about my business. I thought there was strength in that. But I was wrong. I've been wrong this entire time. When we accept oppression for ourselves and for our neighbors, we become willing executors of that oppression. And that's what Adam Dane is counting on. He knows that things can get progressively worse, more exploitative, more cruel and bloody, and people will accept it, because no one is telling them not to. In the past month, I've heard from dozens of people, lost, abandoned, let down by the Republic, and I was expected to put a brave face on the United Star Systems. And why? Alliance Counterterrorism tried to abduct me on tier. The only reason I'm here right now is because of the Free Wolves. Over 200 people were killed in Hallsburg in an act of terror, a seed planted during reclamation. How many more acts of violence are germinating today? Evander tries to interject. Lan, he starts, but she barrels on. Looking directly into the camera, she says, The Republic is sick. If you are still telling yourself that the government serves you, I am telling you now that you're wrong. If you are waiting for a solution other than open revolt, I am telling you there is none. I am telling you to revolt, to rebel, to stick in the gears of the United Star Systems Alliance and grind it down to something we can build from. Evander rises to his feet. What are you doing? Cut! Alondra allows Evander to guide her off the soundstage and out of the room. They have to hear it, she says. The people on Earth have to know what's going on out here. Evander looks angrier than Alondra has ever seen him, angry and bewildered. He struggles for words until a knock comes at the door and one of the PAs pokes her head in. Did we catch it? Evander asks. Yep, the PA gives a thumbs up. Broadcast delay to the rescue. Cut to commercial right before she went off on the consulate. Thank fuck. Evander wipes his brow with a handkerchief. What does that mean? Alondra says. Does that mean no one heard what I said? Everyone in the studio heard what you said, Evander exclaims. What the hell were you thinking? but no one else. No, Evander says. No one else 
is ever going to hear what you just said. This was episode 11 of The Elendred. The show is written and created by Thomas Constantine Moore, produced by Janelle Yee and Toro Adeyemi, and edited by Max Bernstein. Our theme music is by Joe Mendick. I want to thank my studio audience tonight, Chris Becker, Asia Gagnon, and Chris Garber. Thank you for listening. This story will continue next week. Hey there, it's me again. Uh, I just wanted to say thank you again so much for lending your ears and imaginations to this project. Uh, The show is called Thomas Tells a Story, and the last episode of season one of The Elendred and of Thomas Tells a Story uh, is the next one. Um, I think it's going to happen next week. Uh, I do want it to be good, so if there are delays, it's because I'm making sure it's good. But... Uh, In the meantime, anything you can do to spread the word about this podcast, if you like it, if you have feedback, if there are things you'd like to see for season two, if you have questions, please, please reach out. We're on Twitter. My personal Twitter is Thomas C, as in the letter C, most. Um, And the podcast is TTAS Podcast. You can also reach out on Reddit at r slash Thomas Tells. Finally, uh, if you have the means, uh, you can always buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash Thomas Tells. But really, most of all, I want to thank you again from the bottom of my heart for making it this far with me. Uh, hang in there. We've got one more this season, and then we're going to change things up a little bit for season two. And yeah, see you next week. Next week.